everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I hope you're having a fine, whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I was watching an older movie the other day, and there was a character in it who had one of those, uh, one of those books that's hollowed out and there's a flask inside. I feel like you see a lot of those in movies that are set in either like Victorian England or the Old West or, you know, pretty much any time that's post-Gutenberg press but pre-television. I always thought those were kind of cool. I think I might even have one somewhere. But when I think about somebody actually making one, that's actually pretty sad. I mean, books like your one form of relatively passive entertainment back then. You're just getting rid of it. I mean, that's like hollowing out your PlayStation and turning it into a bong. Which, it actually wouldn't surprise me if somebody that I knew had done that. But it's less sad if you think about it as, a person just really wanted to make a Transformer. And they didn't know what robots were yet. So, they just wanted to make a thing that turned into another thing. It's like, oh, it's a book. It's a flask. I bet when they opened the book, they had to make the noise. Which would probably ruin any subterfuge you were using if you were drinking where you weren't supposed to be drinking, but still, pretty neat. Oh man, is there a stoner transformer who turns into a bong? All the other Autobots are off fighting the Decepticons, and he's just hanging out with the dude who turns into a boombox, and then when they get back home, they find out that two of them ate all the Energon cubes. Oh, Bublor. Probably his name's Bublor. Anyway, we've got a comic book to talk about, one that is honestly probably weirder than all of the dumb shit I just said. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was submitted by John C. The program Death of a Cell? We call that apoptosis. A brief summation of a longer tale? Now that's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, John. I probably said that word wrong. Defenders number 33, March 1976, Webbed Hands, Warm Heart. Written by Steve Gerber, drawn by Sal Buscema, inked by Jim Mooney, colored by Annette Kowecki, lettered by Phil Rachelson, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Defensive lineup, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, sort of, and Jack Norris, more or less. Previously in The Defenders. The Incredible Hulk was engaging in one of his signature stomps through nature when he saw a baby deer whose mother had just been shot by poachers. After smashing the shit out of the offending hunters, the Emerald Environmentalist scooped up the frightened foal and leapt off to the Sanctum Sanctimonious to get some animal husbandry tips from the Sorcerer Supreme. Meanwhile, Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was flying around the city thinking about what a fuck-up he was. The billionaire duel bird enthusiast's self-reproachful soaring was interrupted by a psychic assault from an unknown foe. The adult avian aficionado flew into a tree and was knocked out. Nighthawk's predicament quickly went from bad to what the fuck, for when he awoke, the affluent aviator found he had been captured by a cadre of nightmarishly noggined no-goodniks named the Headmen. The curiously craniumed cohort consisted of Dr. Jerry Morgan, who I call Dr. Meltyface because his face is melty, Dr. Arthur Nagin, who I call Dr. Gorilla Body because his human head is perched atop a gorilla body, and Chandra the Mystic, who is bald 
and occasionally wears a turban. These hideously malformed malefactors had plans for their kidnapped Kyle. They scooped his brain out, swapped it out for Chandu's, and left Kyle's now bodiless gray matter sloshing around in a punch bowl. Chandu took his new Kyle body out for a spin and bumped into the Hulk. The body-snatching bad guy and the baby deer-bearing behemoth headed to the Sanctorum. Upon arrival, Chandu infiltrated the defenders' ranks and quickly turned on his purported pals, sucker-punching them with a psychic sneak attack. Oh no! So, a surprise Steve retaliated by sorcerously slapping the Kyle-clad crumbum within inches of his life. Hooray! Through a combination of sorcery, implausible intuitive leaps, and a half-remembered trip to the Vermont State Fair several years ago, the defenders quickly determined that Kyle had been the victim of swapped cerebellums, and that the culprit was Chandu the Mystic. Moreover, Steve was able to mystically triangulate the location of Kyle's disembodied brain, the headsman's headquarters in the suburban town of Westbury, Connecticut. Doctor Strange asked Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body the sorcerously created persona of Valkyrie now inhabits, if he would do the Defenders a favor. Jack agreed, and a few minutes later, Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, the Hulk, and someone who looks an awful lot like Nighthawk but was having trouble operating his jetpack, flew off to Connecticut. Curiouser and curiouser. After knocking on the door, the Defenders were greeted and then ambushed by the headman's newest recruit, Ruby, a sexy, scantily clad scientist whose head looked like a shiny red bowling ball. Ruby's distinctive dome was in fact a bioorganic computer which she could turn into any form and composition she chose, a fact she demonstrated by transforming her noggin into an anti-gamma radiation bomb which she exploded, knocking our perplexed protagonists unconscious. Then she reassembled her recently fragmented face back into its resting state as a featureless red orb. God, Zooks! Can our tale of suspiciously skulled brain-swapping supervillains possibly get any stranger? What new fantastical forms will Ruby have her head assume? And will Kyle's brain ever escape from its suburban science lab captivity? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, amazingly, yes. Exponentially so. A gurney, a massive writhing tentacles, and an enormous pair of lips. And, yes but then it gets abducted by space aliens. A curious scene unfolds in Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious. A super pissed-off-looking baby deer gazes into Steve's orb of Agamotto and is not pleased with what he sees. Did the shock and trauma of seeing his mother shot to death in front of him finally give way to a thirst for bloody vengeance? Ooh, maybe he can become a masked vigilante. These off-season hunters are a cowardly and superstitious lot. To strike fear into their hearts, I shall don the mantle of a fish and game warden. And on that fateful day, the legend of fish and game warden deer was born. Nah. Turns out that before they left the sanctum, Doctor Strange had dealt himself in on the game of Three Brain Monty that the headman had started in the last issue. With Jack Norris's permission, Steve sorcerously stuffed the matrimonially-minded meathead's mind into Chandu's brain, which was in Kyle's body. So that's why Nighthawk was having trouble flying. Needing someplace to put Chandu's mind, and apparently not having a punch bowl handy, the non-ASPCA-compliant conjurer jammed Chandu's consciousness into the foal's body. Damn it, Steve! That baby deer has been through enough. Now it's got to deal with having his body hijacked by a pissed-off third-rate mystic. And a bald one at that. The Chandu-inhabited Furious Foal furrows his forehead as he snarls and mentally recaps the events of the previous few issues. It's adorable. I mean, in a kind of unsettling way, but still. Adorable. 
When he gets to the part of the story where Ruby explodes her head at our harried heroes, his frown briefly turns upside down. Then he remembers that his criminal compatriots still believe that Chandu's brain is in control of Kyle's body, and his frown turns right side up again. I mean, I guess Chandu's brain is still controlling Kyle's body? It's just that Jack's mind is controlling Chandu's brain, which is controlling Kyle's body. I think. Chandu's mind tries to get the foal's body to open the door to the Sanctorum, but has no luck. Because doorknobs. It's pretty cute. Back in Connecticut, the headsmen cart Val, Hulk, and Steve off to the basement for some experimental brain surgeries to alter their thought patterns. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Jack doesn't understand what is happening, but doesn't dare interfere lest he gives away the fact that he isn't really Kyle. I mean, Chandu. I think. Meanwhile, in Central Park, a young couple respectively named Mitchell and Sissy embark on an apparently illicit late-night canoe ride. Mitchell is trepidatious, for which Sissy mocks him mercilessly. Then some orange fishmen emerge from the depths of the lagoon, drag the young couple underwater to where their flying saucer is parked, toss them inside, and zoom off into the night sky. So, that happened. I guess it could have been worse. Could have been Elf with a gun again. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back at the headman's suburban lair, in an attempt to ingratiate himself to his unwitting criminal hosts, a jack-minded, chandu-brained Kyle flirts awkwardly with Ruby. She seems into it. The preposterously powered polymorph turns her head into a giant pair of lips and smooches the turducken of a hero on the cheek. After she turns her noggin back from a Rolling Stones logo into its traditional shiny red bowling ball, the headmen all sit down at the kitchen table and ask Kyle, who they think is Chandu but is secretly Jack, for a full report on what he learned of the defenders during his infiltration of the team. Jack says some stuff that is so stupid that they assume he is making hilarious jokes. Dr. Gorilla Body and Dr. Melty Face are annoyed, but Ruby is further charmed by the counterfeit, counterfeit Kyle. To buy himself some time, Jack suggests that they all go around the table and state their name, their motivation, and their ultimate goal. Nobody seems to find this suggested summer camp activity to be at all suspicious, so they proceed accordingly. Dr. Gorilla Body wants the world to be a scientist-controlled fascist state. Dr. Melty Face wants everyone to respect him, and also not to have a melty face. Ruby wants everyone in the planet to have their heads replaced with magic shape-shifting bowling ball computers like hers. Fair enough. When it's his turn to talk, Jack, I'm just going to call him Jack for a while, makes up some nonsense about how Chandu just wants to be free and mystically bum around the cosmos and not be constrained by society and its rules, man. While well, Jack is paraphrasing the lyrics of Freebird to his conspicuously crowned coffee clatch, we see that the Chandu-infused foal has finally escaped from Steve's sanctum by Kool-Aid manning his way through a window. The mind-swapped mystic has little time to enjoy his newfound freedom, though, because within seconds of making his emphatic egress, he is once again a captive. Like Sissy and Mitchell before him, the Chandu deer is scooped up by creatures from the Orange Lagoon and taken aboard their spaceship. Hooray! A few seconds later, we see that the extraterrestrial animal abductors have been kidnapping all kinds of critters, human and otherwise, and depositing them on a remote island filled with ancient Greek architecture and Kirby-esque futuristic machinery. Neat. Sissy and Mitchell are there, and so are an old lady, a little kid, a giraffe, a gangster, and an elephant. The diverse members of this motley menagerie express confusion as to their whereabouts. Seems reasonable. Back in Westbury, the defenders are finally awakening from their ruby-induced slumber and subsequent surgery. 
Perhaps predictably, the Hulk is less than placid about recent events. He expresses his intention to smash, but Steve stops him, sorcerously binding the Jade Giant's fist together and saying, Now, now, the Hulk, just because our host knocked us unconscious, tied us up, and performed involuntary brain surgery on us, that doesn't mean they're necessarily the bad guys here. Let's see if we can talk things out. Dr. Gorilla Body responds, Yeah, we're done here. You guys can go home or whatever. Bye. Steve replies that the defenders aren't going anywhere without Nighthawk's brain, at which point the headmen realize for the first time that our heroes know that some sort of cerebrum switcheroo has taken place. Everybody fights everybody. For a few seconds. Then, the Hulk smashes the whole house to pieces. Steve orders Nighthawk to swipe Kyle's brain and run for it. Dr. Gorilla Body thinks that Chandu is driving the Nighthawk body, so he lets him. With the Great Matter MacGuffin temporarily removed from the situation, the defenders begin to advance menacingly towards their unconventionally countenanced counterparts. Then Ruby squirts about 50 gallons of pink goo out of her head and incapacitates our heroes. Ruby, Dr. Gorilla Body, and Dr. Melty Face run off into the night, leaving Val, Hulk, and Steve coated in what looks like several kiddie pools worth of silly putty. So... At least when they finally do free themselves, they'll be able to copy their favorite comic strips and then stretch them out. Hey, I wonder if Dr. Meltyface ever does that and is like, Why, look, Maryworth, you now have the same flaccid features that I do. We can finally be together. Okay, that's my new headcanon. Jerry Morgan was driven to a life of crime due to his unrequited love for Maryworth. Anyway... In the night skies above Westbury, Connecticut, it looks as though Jack is free and clear, with a bowl full of stolen cerebellum securely in his existentially ambiguous clutches. Then a flying saucer flies up above him and beams him on board. Oh. Once on board, Jack is greeted by the orange fish dudes who are introduced to him as the Ludberdites of Czar. The introductions are made by a familiar-looking, golden-skinned man with silver hair, a star-encrusted black onesie, and what looks like an intercontinental championship belt. That's right, Nebulon, the celestial man from beyond the stars, is back. I wonder what he and his orange buddies are going to do with that giraffe. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I am doing well, although I am very confused. What could possibly be the source of your confusion, sir? Oh, boy. I must say I really dug this issue. This was super fun, but so dang weird. Why is Bambi mad? Oh, boy. I'm going to do my best, but talking about this, like trying to analyze it, is really difficult because there's so much going on and so much of it is so weird, and I really enjoyed it, but... It's like somebody handed me a plate that is blue spaghetti covered with peanut butter and Monopoly hotels, and is like, hey, is there too much salt in this? <laughs> and I'm like, um, may- maybe? Uh, like, my mind is just kind of overwhelmed with all of the weirdness that's happening, that trying to actually get a coherent discussion of it might be difficult, but I will do my best. It's like, you don't want to be rude. And just spit the hotels everywhere. <laughs> right. But you don't really want to chew them and swallow them. You understand my predicament exactly. It's a tough one. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, shall we get into it? I guess we have no choice. Uh, yep, no way out but through. Cheers. Right off the bat, what the fuck do you think the title means? Near, as I can tell, 
it's a reference to the Lubberdites yeah, who so, make an appearance. But is that a song, Cold Hands Warm? I know there's one like from I know there's an ago. expression that is Cold Hands Warm Heart. But Webbed Hands Warm Heart. I agree that Webbed Hands seems to refer to the Ludberdites mm-hmm. that we meet at the end. Mm-hmm. And in the middle, who has a warm heart in this issue? I think Ruby has a warm heart because she <laughs> thinks that Nighthawk's body is pretty hot. <laughs> I don't think that's generally what the phrase warm heart means, but I'll, I'll allow it. I don't know what else to say. Fair enough. Fair it's enough. It's a very confusing comic book, this one. Yeah, let's dive into Ruby, Ruby, Ruby. Oh, Ruby. Oh, boy. They finally got around to giving her a personality and having her say some things. I say finally that it's been like one and a half issues that she's appeared in, right? What? Is it just one? I just remember the one. Yeah, I think she just showed up last issue. For some reason, I was thinking she showed up at the end of the previous one, but she didn't. That was just a bowling ball. Right. I get so confused. So I guess she just showed up an issue ago, but in that issue, she barely talked and was really used more as a device and a weapon than as a character. This issue, she starts to get some character, and she is fun as hell. Mm-hmm. I really like Ruby. She's got good swagger. I like the way she sits in the conference room, like, basically puts, she doesn't quite, but, like, basically puts her feet up on the table and is like, all right, boys. Yeah, she has very well-drawn, confident, and relaxed body language, which is cool to see. Yeah. I guess you kind of have to carry more off with body language when your head is a bowling ball. Mm-hmm. But she does it well. We also see her interactions, as you mentioned, with Jack in the Kyle body are super fun. She makes him so uncomfortable, but is both, like, attracted to him in a very matter-of-fact kind of way. Mm -hmm. And it totally works. It also made me realize something about Nighthawk. What's that? I think he's supposed to be, like, super hot. Uh Oh. Like, Jack says a bunch of dumb shit in this issue. Mm -hmm. And everybody, I think especially Ruby, tries to put the most positive spin on it imaginable. Which leads me to believe that in addition to just being, like, really rich, Kyle is probably supposed to be super handsome and kind of lives in, like, that bubble. Where, like, he says some dumb shit and then everybody's just like, oh, that's so deep. Yeah, what is the... something bias. There's some word for that, like, appearance bias or something, where just basically people that are super hot, like, things are generally easier for them because people are willing to overlook. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have other problems. Hmm. But... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it is funny, too, because it also exposes, like, wait, this is, he's Jack Norris at the time. He's talking to Ruby. Yes. And so he's very much Jack Norris, where he meets this bowling ball-headed, hot-bodied woman. And, like, all he can think of to say is, I'm attracted to most of you. Yeah, but I think we're in Jack Norris saying something as dumb and offensive as that would get him, you know, punched in the dick. When he's in, like, Kyle's super hot body, he gets a very different reaction to it, and uh, Ruby's like, well, I find most of you attractive, too. And then she turns her head into a pair of lips and smooches him. And man, is that weird. It is super weird, but it is really fun. Mm-hmm. She also turns her head into a gurney that she carts the Hulk around on, and we learn that her goal within the Headmen, they all have varying goals that Mm -hmm. they want to accomplish as a group and hers is that she would like to have everyone in the world's head replaced with a cool head like hers Mm -hmm. 
That would seem to put her at odds with the rest of the group, at least in as much as, why not start with them? That's true. None of them seem to be volunteering for it, including... Multiface. Including Dr. Multiface, which seems weird to me. Mm. Because honestly, there is no downside to having her bowling ball head situation. It looks like a bowling ball because she wants it to look that way. She can change it into any shape she wants. Corey, would you undergo a rubification if it were feasible? Um, yeah, because if I wanted to, I could just look like how I look yeah. now. Or yeah. I could look different if I wanted to. And then I could make a... You name it. I yeah. could make whatever I wanted exactly. out of my head. Yeah. There's no downside to this. I can't see one. I don't know why everybody has these objections to it. Mm. It seems like a neat thing. And if they all decided to keep the bowling ball shape, the headmen, like, their name would be even better because they would just all have the same head but on weird bodies instead of normal-ish heads on weird bodies. Wait, no. It's Melty. really just it's Dr. A, Gorilla face. It's a mix-up. It's a like giant mix-up. Yeah, it's really just Dr. Gorilla body that has that situation going on. So then it would be even more consistent with their bad guy group name yeah. if they all had the same head. Yeah, so I'm they, all in. Although, really, I think I mentioned this probably just in the synopsis of the last issue. Headman is a dumb name, especially when they have a female member of the group. When Headmasters is sitting right there and is kind of a common phrase, like it's somebody who runs a school mm-hmm. and they're trying to teach the world mm-hmm. some lessons, mm-hmm. like they're the best. Yeah. Really, why not go with Headmasters? Why not? I don't know. Just saying. Noted. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, since we started with Ruby. <laughs> what? I just saw your notes and the, the top of it is just a bunch of exclamation points and question marks. Yep. That is like, okay. That was my first impression of the issue. Here we go. <laughs> since we started with Ruby, let's just run through the rest of the headmen real quick. All right. Dr. Gorilla Body. Mm-hmm. Kind of cements his position as a douche in this issue. Mm-hmm. Like... He's a real dick. His stated goal is... Gorilla bodies for everyone. Wait, no. No, I don't think he wants gorilla bodies for everyone. He just thinks that he should be running the show because he's smart. So he wants kind of like a scientist-run fascist state. Mm Mm-hmm. With gorilla bodies for everyone. Well, with gorilla bodies for those who want them. I just, I just made that up. He never said that. No, and I don't think he... I don't think he's happy with his gorilla body, it seems like. Oh, no, no. Although, you know, he uses it pretty well. But he does say, We can seize this mad planet by the throat and force it to submit to our control. That's my goal, the elimination of the accidental factor. A society which functions like a precision instrument. Yeah, that's kind of his deal. He comes off as a big dick. He's kind of the most evil of the four-person headmen crew. And it's nominal head, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. And pretty much fuck that guy. He's not likable. No. He does also have a pretty character-defining moment in which Doctor Strange has not officially met him before. And so when he recovers, he says, Now, what is it that you're up to, mister? And Doctor Gorilla Body interrupts him and is like, Doctor Arthur Nagin. I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. I think it cements his characterization as an arrogant dick. Yeah. So that's Doctor Gorilla Body for you. It kind of is one of those things that makes me want to have a doctorate just so that occasionally his whimsy strikes i could do that oh that would be fun wouldn't it you can uh send away for an honorary doctorate of divinity from world christianship ministries i became a reverend through them when i was 17 
But not a doctor? It was 50 bucks. Oh. Back then, $50 was a lot of money, Corey. Yeah. It's still kind of a lot of money. That's not cheap. But it would be kind of nice to be able to say, that's a doctor. But when Negan does it? Mm. Yeah, no. We'd do it cool. (laughs) Hey, if you are an institution of higher learning and would like to grant either Corey or myself an honorary doctorate of some kind. Yeah, or both. Yeah, it's not an either or. Yeah. Yeah, we can, we can, we could both be doctors. It's possible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, hook us up, institutions of higher learning. Send us your degrees. Yeah, I understand somebody got a question on a test right a few months ago because of us. Not bad. Education. Dr. Melty Face. I just want people to know I'm smart. Yeah, even though my face is melty because I fucked up real bad. That's pretty much Dr. Melty Face. Yep. He is a literal sad sack. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much it. He comes off as less evil and more nebbishy than the other headmen. And part of that is really off the bat we get Chandu's description of him, which I love. Dr. Jerry Morgan, the molecular biologist whose languidness of flesh matched that of his personality. Mm. He's got a languid brain. Not a real take-charge kind of dude, and we see that borne out several times in both this issue and the last. He wants to belong, too, though, because like there's a part where Negan is doing something. He's like, I'm a scientist, too. You yeah. can tell me I'll get it. Yeah. Oh, Dr. Melty. kind of bad for him. A little bit. Only a little bit. He was a real dick to Ruby last issue. I know, so he should get a ruby head. Yeah. Fucking ruby heads for everybody. Mm. I am on board this platform of hers. It doesn't also seem to be coming from a place of uh, evil. No. I mean, I guess dictating mandatory... Head replacement. (laughs) Yeah, I guess dictating (laughs) mandatory head replacement for everyone on the planet, regardless of their desires in this situation... Isn't the nicest thing, but it does seem like it's for our own good. It's not evil per se. No, just misguided, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even not misguided. Fuck it, honestly, I'm on Team Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> well, fucking hook me up with my organic computer head. Mm-hmm. Although, really, isn't every brain an organic computer? Whoa. Ah! <laughs> Chandu the Mystic. He's just bitter from the county fair circuit yeah he's uh he's just an angry bitter dude who just wants to be famous and has a lot of entitlement issues and is kind of lashing out at the world perhaps most relevant to our story though he is also in a baby deer's body right now which he is not stoked about (laughs) so funny you ever watch a baby angry baby deer try and open a door and fall on its butt Oh boy, he is so pissed off. And kind of reasonably so. Which does beg the larger question and my biggest problem with this issue. What did they do with the baby deer's mind? Oh. Had you not thought of that? No. I couldn't think of anything else. It made me so sad. Like, Dr. Strange killed a baby deer. I think pretty much. Unless he's got a punch bowl that is sitting somewhere with a baby deer mind in it. But the mind being more ethereal than the brain, I don't know how that would work. He should have at least jammed that baby deer's mind into Jack's body. Like, everyone else moved over one, but I then it was just like, eh, and then baby deer mind, whatever. I choose to believe that's what he did. 
and what, Norris is gonna wake up he, and there's just he that look for some grass to eat or whatever it is that why is he sleeping do. now babies need a lot of sleep oh i guess that's fair i would like to believe that but i think he did just what the headmen did except for not even having the courtesy of having a punch bowl full of deer mind yeah it's very disturbing and it it really bothered me like i kind of couldn't get it out of my head like dude maybe because it's an animal its consciousness occupies less space than the human consciousness and so therefore it, so there's a chandu like, mind still... and a baby deer yes. mind yeah. inside the same brain but chandu can take over the baby deer mind so the it's in because another curious wrinkle here is is they have not only body and mind but soul mentioned right so maybe the deer's mind is in its soul and the brain is where chandu is residing Whoa. <laughs> it's a spirit animal. Uh, that is some confusing stuff, man. This is what we have to work with, sir. Fair enough. Let's move along from the headmen momentarily and meet a couple of new characters, Mitchell and Sissy. She is mean. She is kind of mean. She does have mostly good points about their midnight canoe ride in Central Park. What's Mitchell so worried about? How do you think they got the canoe down there? Because it seems like they're trying to be surreptitious and sneaky. Tough to be sneaky when you're carrying like a 12-foot canoe. Mm, uh, don't know. Okay. Were you disappointed or relieved when you found out that Elf with a Gun wasn't going to kill them? Did you think that Elf with a Gun was going to pop out and kill them? Because it had the same setup to me as the other Elf with a Gun interludes. And so I just assumed... That elf with a gun was going to pop out and murder them. Yeah, I'm glad that doesn't happen, and I I don't want to see that happen again. I don't know why it keeps popping up. Yeah, when I read the series the first time, I was delighted by the weirdness of Elf with a Gun. It comes across as more mean-spirited and less fun than I remember on rereading it. And I, I'm i not crazy about elf with, elf with a Gun. I hope that it is resolved and explained at some point why there's an elf with a gun character that keeps showing up because if we get to whenever we say the end of this is and i don't know that answer i'll be bothered will you suspect that the elf with a gun is still out there somewhere well and perhaps to. looking for you no it's fiction Corey. sir it is fiction you do sometimes like to sing john denver songs i just more so the toots and the maytals version but yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying elf with a gun could be anywhere Corey. it's creepy as shit yeah so you were relieved that it wasn't Elf with a gun, that it was in fact red creatures from the Black Lagoon. Yes. Yes, I <laughs> yeah. was. I kind of was too. That being said, that's some weird shit going on with those dudes. Oh, do you think they're going to be in league with um, Ruby? Because they're red? Yeah, they're these red fishy-handed dudes named the Ludbridites and they're pals with Nebulon. Yep. Hey. Ten foot tall sparkle man. Yes, the golden skinned, silver haired, intercontinental champion from beyond the stars. Who's back? And how? And he's got some fishmong and he's got some fish monster friends. I almost said some fishmonger friends. Well maybe. He well, he is actually surprisingly good at making friends. I bet the Ludbirdites eat fish. Yeah, but fishmonger doesn't mean you eat fish, it means you sell them. Right, but if he has fishmonger friends, he can feed all his Ludbirdite friends. Good thinking. 
Thank you. Synergy. It's a really weirdly drawn panel when they introduce him because the Ludbardites are like kind of behind him and one of them is like crouching down and like cradling his leg. Yeah, it reminded me of the cover to, I think, Star Wars where Luke is holding the lightsaber over his head and Leia is clinging to his leg. It's like a Frazetta painting almost where he's the barbarian hero and the Ludbardites are the like clinging sexy lady that's i when i first saw it i thought it was like a boris vallejo painting yeah (laughs) which is basically the same yeah so maybe that is the relationship we don't know we did see that nebulon's kind of a a weird sea monster himself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cephalopod is he yes i looked up nebulon because i could not remember him and i thought who is that tall sparkly (laughs) gentleman with the weird fishy friends ah fair enough that said he was a a cephalopod hmm well, good for him. Mm-hmm. That does make me like him a little bit better. Love me a cephalopod. Yep. Well, make sure you won't fry him up, batter him, and eat him. I don't eat cephalopods. Exactly. Yes. Nebulon, you're safe. Indeed. I, for one, welcome our cephalopod overlords. Uh, you're going to have to choose, man. Sharks. Oh, I'm going to let them fight it out. They're both okay. They're both aces in my book. Okay. I'm big on capitulating to sea life from outer space, Corey. I'm seeing a pattern. Yeah, it's kind of my thing. What effect do you think the encephalotransmorgrifier is going to have on the Defenders? Assuming Norris fucked up and didn't do anything he was supposed to do. I'm pretty sure he didn't. He says that gonna, he couldn't I'm... figure out what he was supposed to do, but he couldn't just do nothing. Seems like he erred on the side of doing nothing. I, th- I think that's a pretty safe assumption. So assuming that, I, I think that it may allow some degree of control remotely of the actions that they're going to make um, at some point as Negan sees fit. I was trying to figure out if it was some kind of, that they would be more susceptible to his direction, or if it would just be that he would subtly make them kind of evil. It was really hard to tell, and I am curious as to what it will be. So I guess in that regard, well, well done in creating that kind of dramatic tension. Mm. It is weird seeing and hearing described the Jack Norris in Kyle's body scenario. Jack Norris in Kyle's body, but with Chandu's brain. Right. There's a lot going on there. He seems uncomfortable. He does. I think that's great, and I would like him to be made more uncomfortable. Because I think that Valkyrie should insist on calling him Kyle and saying things like, Kyle, don't you remember? Don't you remember that time when we did this, Kyle? I'm so sad that she's not doing that now that you mentioned it. I feel like she should, although here's why I think she may not be doing that. There's kind of some overlap. <laughs> I feel like if she was like, Kyle, don't you remember the time when you harassed me and then kissed me against my will? Then Jack Norris would just be like, yeah, I do remember that. Uh, I totally did that. Good call. Yeah. So, I mean, there's some overlap there, but I really feel like Val should like lean into it and just be like, yeah, this is what it's like. You're in a different body, but you're still you. I'm in your ex-wife's body, or your wife's ex-body, but I'm still me. So please. It's a real teachable moment. It is, it is. And I hope that it's one that doesn't get completely to slide by. I'm hoping in the next issue or two she'll kind of lean into it. And maybe this will be the moment when we see an actual transformation in Jack Norris's character. Mm. It would be nice. I'm not holding my breath. That is a good policy. 
Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into the minutia? Just one last thing, which is that, of course, the Hulk smashes real good in this issue and blows up the whole building. Yep. And it's across the street from the dude's house back in issue 21 that he blew up. And that guy, George, is laughing his ass off (laughs) at the destruction of his neighbor's house, which makes me think he's kind of a jerk. It makes me think that George is a total asshole. But, like, you can... Look, I can appreciate Schadenfreude as much as the next person, but there is potentially somebody who just died in that situation. Which his wife points out to him, and he's he's just like, yeah, whatever, dude. He's he's trying to say, go ahead and call an ambulance, but he's laughing too hard to. Yeah, it's a real dick moment for George there. Yeah, he called the ha cops. Call an ambulance, yuck, and tell them, huh, be sure and tell them it wasn't our house this time. Yippee! I kind of wish the Hulk had smashed him. He takes too much joy in the destruction of his neighbor's house. It also also kind of cracked me up, though. Yeah, I, I get that, especially because we know that A, nobody did die in that accident, and that, two, if they had, it wouldn't be a bad thing because, uh, Dr. Gorilla Body's a real piece of shit. But he doesn't know that, and man, George is a real shithead. Very callous. Indeed. We also see on a, on a, the next page, this is totally unrelated, but just another weird little moment, when Nighthawk slash Jack slash Kyle slash Chandu is flying away with Jack's brain in a bowl. We saw last issue that Jack as Kyle is super bad at flying. Mm-hmm. Looks like he's doing better this time. But that brain is just sloshing around in that punch ball. And he looks mildly horrified at the whole situation, too. He really does. And then he gets picked up by the Lumberdites in their craft and beamed onto the ancient Greek island that the old lady identifies as such. I was going to say, here just, you have limited information. It's true. I have very limited information as to where they are and what's going on there. She does say it a bunch of times, She though. says it's Greek... A few times. Yep. I don't have any reason to distrust her. She's got a nice little flower in her hat. She's an old lady. Mm-hmm. Seems like she knows about ancient Greek architecture. I mean, she's pretty old. Maybe she's an ancient Greek. Oh, I don't think so. Why did they pick up the fawn? Why did they pick up the giraffe? Why did they pick up the elephant? Why did they pick up Mitchell and Sissy? Why did they pick up Kyle and Kyle's brain? I don't know. It's all a mystery. Are they building a zoo? It's going to be a weird zoo. I haven't seen the movie, We Bought a Zoo. Is that what this is about? I haven't seen that either. (sighs) Maybe we should watch that movie, and it will have all the answers for us. It may make more sense than this comic book. Okay, then it's agreed. We will watch. We Bought a Zoo. (laughs) We Bought a Zoo, oh God. Oh, that's not. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You ready to get into the minutiae? Sure. Rick, would you please sing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Cory, in this issue, as in every issue of a Defenders comic book, at least one character has to act in a way counter to their previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? And behave in that manner. As usual, this doesn't necessarily further the plot. Uh Uh-huh. But I did think it was out of character and quite strange Mm -hmm. that Dr. S 
at the scene when they're basically starting to fight back after they've uh, been revived from the transmorgifier or whatever it is, mm-hmm. says, you know, I don't believe in vengeance, but go forth and kick their asses and I shan't cast any spells. Okay. That's super weird for him. I guess that is kind of weird, but I also get that he's pissed off. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's It's a not fair weird point. that 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 he says you guys go fight back. It's weird that he says I'll just hang out here and you can do what you want and <laughs> I'm not going to use my awesome magic. No, I agree, but I did I liked it. I liked it as kind of a like good cop bad cop thing where he's like Oh, geez, you wouldn't like these guys. I've been I've been really reining them in, but I uh, tell you what, I'm going to leave you alone in the interrogation room with them, and I'm going to go out for some mystical coffee. Mm. I'll be back in five minutes and see what they've done with you. Pretty much. Maybe that will loosen your tongues. <laughs> Maybe so. That was my... Uh, I, think that, I think that is a fair choice. I decided to go with the Hulk mm. for letting Steve put Chandu's mind in the body of his newly adopted baby deer that he just rescued from having been orphaned by evil hunters that he killed. Mm. That doesn't seem like the Hulk to me. He was very protective of the deer, and then he's just like, meh, well, whatever. I'm thinking about other things. And that's that's not a the Hulk move to me. So I went with the Hulk. Corey. Yes. In this issue, as in every issue of Defenders Comic Book, there is a best defender and a worst offender. Who was the best defender? Well, despite being a sucker, I loved the way that the Hulk just smashed everything to bits, even wearing those weird pink hand-covered things that Doctor Strange put on him to stop him from smashing things. Yeah, they're those generic-looking, at least for comic books or science fiction, like fist manacles that cover up your entire fist and apparently take your powers away most times. Mm -hmm. But they clearly didn't take away the Hulk's power because he used them to smash and smash and smash. Mm -hmm. Corey, this is a shocking development, but I chose Jack Norris as the best defender. (laughs) I I thought about this a little bit. He actually did a really good job, I feel like, infiltrating the headmen and perhaps... Not acting in the most intelligent way, but his plan worked and he made excuses for things and seduced Ruby and actually did a pretty competent job for the most part and was kind of the linchpin of this weird non-plan that they had. It, It shocked me and I was surprised as anyone, but I think in this issue, Jack Norris in Nighthawk's body is the best defender. This is indeed a curious turn of events because I had Mr. Norris residing in Nighthawk's body as the worst offender. What? Because I believe that by not knowing what to do when they were plugged into those brain things, he has potentially sown the seeds of, if not destruction, at least great inconvenience for the defenders in some following (sighs) issues. I guess. Here's where I like what Jack did in this issue. When the headmen are sitting around in their round table and talking about, A, their plans, and two, their motivation exposition dump that they do, where they go around table and it's, everybody introduce yourself and stay your goal for the group. He does a really good job explaining what he believes Chandu's motivation is, to be a mystic and to have freedom. Mm. He does a really nice job describing that. 
And before that, when Dr. Gorilla Body asks him how they can use their captive's powers, he ad-libs, well, Dr. Strange does magic tricks. He, he'd be fun at parties. And Barb, Fal uh, the girl, has a flying horse. If we needed quick cash, we could rent it out at county fairs. <laughs> and, and then they cut him off and they're like, dude, stop being a fuck up. And Ruby's like, oh, he's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was trying to be funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just couldn't think of a good plan. No. And he really has thought through, thought out those ideas. No, that was the best that he came to the table with. And those ideas were so stupid, they thought he was making bad jokes. But it worked. And it came across as him being charismatic. And he mastered his flying enough to carry a sloshing brain bowl around with him. And then he got abducted by... It wasn't through his own webby fault guys. that he got abducted by webby guys. They can catch anything. They can catch an angry baby fawn. They can catch a giraffe. They can catch Mitchell. They can catch Sissy. I don't like it. I thought he did a very good job. And I, I really enjoyed his performance in this issue, which is a definite rarity for Jack Norris. It was nice to see him, with the exception of how he dealt with Ruby not being a, a sexist, <laughs> awful person. But I respectfully disagree. Okay. Well, you have already told me who you think the worst defender is. In a full reversal, the worst defender in this issue is the Incredible Hulk. What? <laughs> Pet ownership is a big responsibility, and he abdicated it in allowing Doctor Strange to jam an evil person into the baby deer's mind and then just toss that baby deer's mind out with a goddamn trash. We don't know that. We know that. I don't know that. You may not know it with your head, but you know it with your heart, Corey. <laughs> I disagree. It is a one-brain-over situation, one-mind-over situation. He takes the mind out of Jack Norris, puts it in Kyle's body, takes Chandu's mind, which is in Kyle's body, puts it in the baby deer, and that's it. That baby deer mind doesn't even get the courtesy of a punch bowl. And the Hulk just stood back and let it happen. I think that baby deer is his responsibility. I don't think that the Hulk thought the whole pet ownership through that much. He just rescued the Well, deer. then that's not great in and of itself. It's not great, but it's also pretty hulky. This isn't the sucker category. This is the worst offender. Mm. I'm sorry, Corey, but the Hulk did a bad job. I think that the deer's consciousness is still somewhere and the deer will be fine. I don't think the Hulk did a bad job. I bet we never see that deer's consciousness again. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Where do you think it is? You think it's still in the deer body? Mm -hmm. Well, that is not a good existence for that deer. Having <laughs> having its, its thoughts and body taken over by Chandu. No, no, that's that's pretty yucky, but... That's pretty yucky, and Chandu is not showing a lot of respect for this deer fucking breaking the the window of, like, a third-story sanctum sanctimonious and leaping into the street. I'm not gonna beat up the Hulk for this. I am. Fair enough. Well, on to safer territory. Corey. Yes. What was your favorite sound effect? Oh, there were so many good ones. There were so many good ones. There were a few different ones where I would get to one, and then I'd be like... That's definitely my favorite sound effect. And then I would go a few more pages and then be like, nope, we have a new winner. My initial winner was on page 14, Fashoom! Mm, spaceship. Spaceship taken up out of Central Park's lake. Mm -hmm. Pretty fun. That got supplanted. We'll get to that in a minute. What was your favorite? I, I had three written down. 
Okay. And I, I think we may have gone in a similar order. My my first one, though, wasn't a Fushum, which was nice. Mm-hmm. But it was the sound that uh, a Negan and a Valkyrie make when they smash into each other. That was fun, too. Which is a, would you say, a thump? Thump? Yeah, with a P-H-U-M-P. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. I enjoyed that as well. And then, yeah, I think we ended up at the same conclusion. Sploog! <laughs> <laughs> that is Ruby, 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 <laughs> shooting her head gunk all over the defenders and silly puttying them up something fierce. Mm-hmm. Sploog. Very evocative. <laughs> also, something that might be said if noted comic book artist from the horror genre in the 70s, Mike Plug, came over unannounced to somebody's house. They might say, hey, Sploog. They might. Yeah. I don't think that's what's happening in that panel. No. No. I think she's just splooging it up. Yeah, disrespecting her enemies. Disrespecting the laws of physics. Takes a lot of power to be that disrespectful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. We are in full agreement. Sploog. Sploog it is. Sploog. (laughs) (laughs) Corey, what was your favorite panel? There was a, a few good ones. There were more than a few good ones. There was a lot of good ones. There was so much weird shit going on in this issue. I had a lot of difficulty choosing one specifically. I have three written down. I'll, I'm going to just pick one. Okay. And call it, call it the favorite. And that's on page 27. I call it the Great Brain Escape. And it's the one where <laughs> Jack Norris and Kyle are, or, which, you know, the whole thing. I had that one written down as well. They're just sloshing that brain ball <laughs> all around the night skies. <laughs> he looks so, like, uncomfortable with the whole thing. He's like, I'm flying, I don't know how to fly, I've got this brain in a punch bowl with juice which, in it. Which, honestly, is just grossing me out. He had to get told earlier, like, I don't care if you think it's weird and gross, just pick it up, Jack! And he's like, his face is like, it's like when you're like picking up dog poop. He's like trying to put his nose as far away from it as possible. And fly. Somebody was telling me that when he was performing at Woodstock, Carlos Santana was on a ton of acid and was hallucinating that his guitar was a snake. And that was why he was closing his eyes and holding it as far away from himself (laughs) as he could while he played it. I feel like Jack Norris is doing a similar thing with Kyle's brain. Wow. That just seems like a bad idea. Like, if you had to perform in front of lots of people, you shouldn't take drugs that make oh, things seem I, like snakes. Yeah. I think the only worst scenario that I've heard about somebody doing that in was Bootsy Collins when he was playing with James Brown's band. Dropped acid before playing with James Brown on stage. Oh, he's very And he talked about, about, like, how terrifying that was. And I think in a lot of ways that's even scarier than Carlos Santana's situation because... On a certain level, I feel like Carlos Santana probably knew rationally that that guitar was not a snake. Bootsy Collins knew that James Brown was James Brown. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that is way scarier than a snake. Yeah. And he did not suffer fools or bad performance whatsoever. Or Eddie. Anything. Anything. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Oh, Bootsy. Terrifying. But yeah, that's a cool panel. Pop a bobble. (laughs) I also really liked... The reveal of Nebulon at the end. I thought that was super fun. I think my favorite is the opening panel where it is a super angry baby deer looking into the eye of Agamotto and seeing 
the defenders all trussed up, having some kind of a brain device strapped on them. It's such a disorienting panel. How angry the baby deer looks, and how weird what's happening inside of this crystal ball that an angry baby deer is looking at is. It's all so well executed. It set the tone for the whole book of just like, okay, put on your seatbelts, folks, because this is going to be wacky. Yeah, we are taking a rapid journey to Weirdsville, and it's a curvy road. But yeah, there were so many. that I also loved the panel where Ruby turns her head into a gurney to put the Hulk on. The wump, pump, fump scene Yep, is pretty awesome. That, that is pretty great. The fight scenes are pretty fun. Every panel where there is the baby deer involved, that baby deer looks so mad. The one where the Lubberdite is holding the baby deer? Yeah. I had that written down. That's super weird and Oof. cute and creepy and just all... It's just so All confusing. of the things. The panels where you see the baby deer escaping from the Sanctum Sanctorum that is juxtaposed with Jack Norris as Nighthawk as Chandu describing the life and motivation of a sorcerer is really interesting. Mm. I'm going to read some of that dialogue because it didn't make it for my favorite words because there were so many of those to choose from. But he says, actually, folks, my one true desire is my own freedom. And when he says freedom, you see the baby deer jumping out of the window of the apartment. I'm a mystic, right? I need to journey where my soul leads me. And I can't be restrained, you know? And as he's saying restrained, then you see the Ludberdite reaching out of the shadows and grabbing the baby deer by the neck. And then he says, ask Dr. Strange. He'll tell you there are too many mysteries yet to be explored. And that is the panel where those words are juxtaposed over an image of a Ludberdite cradling a angry baby deer. Mm, very, it's, very strange. It's just really cool. Favorite words. So many weird words yeah, to choose from. there really were. Let's see. I think I'm going to go to a bit of editorializing on page 27. And it's the scene that was my favorite panel also where Nighthawk slash Kyle is flying away with his own brain and mm -hmm. being grossed out. And the exposition in there says, As the body of Nighthawk with the brain of Chandu and the soul of Jack Norris soars away with Kyle Richmond's gray matter in car as cargo... An oddly satisfied smile lifts the ends of Nagin's lips. Mm -hmm. Because Nagin thinks that that is Chandu in control and that Chandu has possession of the Kyle brain. And so he's like, you stupid idiot, Dr. Strange. That's a real mix-em-up. Oh, boy. Such a farce, really. Mm. This is one of the first issues that we covered that is a true farce. Very farcical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked that a lot, too. We already had the description of Jerry that I said that was amongst my favorite. I think maybe my favorite is the description of Chandu as the baby deer, where it says, Livid, furrowed brow, pulsing with the ache of savage loathing. The deer recalls the sequence of events which led him to this state. I really liked that. I really liked Jack's business plan, <laughs> as we talked about. I thought that was really fun. And I really like on page 30 which we have talked about it, but we haven't actually quoted it. Doctor Strange saying, Ordinarily, my friend, I do not approve of revenge as a motive. And Val comes in from behind and says, Make an exception, Stephen, just this once. As you wish, I shall refrain from spell casting and allow you, Val, and the Green Behemoth, to, uh, 
mop up the floor with them. You can hear in that how proud Steve is of himself to have, in his mind, correctly used some hip teen slang. <laughs> I love whenever he does that. It's something that Steve Gerber is coming back to with mm. Doctor Strange more and more, but him using slang and being proud of himself, but not really getting it quite right. Mm -hmm. It was pretty neat. And I think that's my favorite word. Very good. Corey, sartorially speaking, which which instances of fashion do you feel are worthy of note? Well, I bent the rules a little bit, a bit of a spoiler for the audience, but there is a bit of a hostess theater to come. Mm. And as part of that, we did get to see a pretty cool polka-dotted blouse mm -hmm. worn by uh, Mary Jane Watson. Indeed we did. Yeah, it's a white blouse with giant red polka dots on it, and normally that sort of thing would look kind of clowny, but she really pulls it off. Yeah, it's the kind of top you would normally expect to see on a clown, as you said, or on the American Dream Dusty Roads, and it's not either of those. She manages to make it look pretty fashionable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's well noted. The fashion that I found noteworthy, there wasn't a ton to talk about. There was George's daughter was wearing a nice yellow polo shirt with purple pants. Mm. And I like that use of complimentary colors. I thought that was pretty cool looking. And we also see Mitchell, who is wearing what I would consider to be my absolute nightmare outfit, which is a light blue button-down shirt with khaki slacks that are tucked in. I see that and I'm like, oh no, he has to work an office job. I don't want to, I never want to wear slacks. I specifically never want to wear that outfit. And it gave me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was out of work for a little bit and I remember looking for a job and thinking like, I haven't worn slacks in years and I really don't want to wear slacks. <laughs> I don't know what I would do if I was offered a pretty good job, but that made me wear slacks. So, I feel for Mitchell in this situation. He's not a super sympathetic character, but uh, I did have sympathy for him in his, what I'm sure was not, voluntary outfit. Fair enough. Now, Corey, we all know that the Hulk rules, but in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this one, the Hulk brought home the lesson that I think many of us have have come to grapple with, and that's that you have to use the tools which are available to you in a given situation mm. to get the job done. He realizes that with his two hands fused together, he can still smash. And he smashes real good with those two hands fused together. That's the Hulk's rules. Use the tools at your disposal. I think the Hulk's rules is that schadenfraude can be taken too far. And we talked about that some already. He sees George's reaction to seeing his neighbor's house smashed, and he's like, that's not a good look, man. And he sees Val noting that there is another person that is dealing with the situation that she dealt with, seeing Jack Norris in Kyle's body, and she shows remarkable restraint, although I wish she didn't, mm -hmm. in not being like, hey, here's what this is like. And the Hulk, I think, learned that lesson. And that lesson, and the Hulk's rule, is that schadenfreude can be taken too far and is not a good look. Corey. Yes? We're on to the Wong segment. Mm. Do we have we... a name for the Wong segment? Oh, man, we are. Um, what's Wong with this picture? We've done that. Uh, 
Two Wongs don't make it right. No, yeah. we've done that. Flying away on a Wong and a prayer. Oh. <laughs> Who can it be? Believe it or not, it's just Wong. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't really fit mine, but sure. Okay, fair enough. So what's Wong doing? In the year of our Lord, 1976, and the month of our Lord, March. Yes. So, as previously discussed, I think on more than one occasion, we have talked about Wong's love of boxing, the sweet mm -hmm. science. He's a fan of the sport. Indeed. So, Wong, fan of boxing, also advocate for social justice. Yeah. March 17 of 1976, had gone to, to visit uh, Ruben the Hurricane Carter, who was at that time on parole. To see if he could help with 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 the case to basically get get his wrongful imprisonment overturned. Mm -hmm. Reuben Carter had been wrongfully accused of taking part in triple murder. Was locked up for a couple decades before mm -hmm. he was um, cleared and released. Unfortunately, things did not go Carter's way, and he had to go back to jail until 1985. But that's what Wong was doing. Nice try, Wong, and I, I appreciate your effort. That's a bummer of a story. Mm. Uh, not not your story, but uh, the hurricane. The whole story yeah. is a sad deal. Yeah. There was a other sad boxing news that month in that uh, a dude whose nickname was Slapsy <laughs> died. Oh. Oh, no. Who was a champion in the 30s. Slapsy. Slapsy. <laughs> that seems like an insulting nickname. It really does. But I mean, he was a champion for a couple years. Mm. But yeah, Slapsy. I thought that was where you were going. Oh, no. No. Yeah. That was one thing that Wong was doing that month, flying away on a Wong in a prayer. <laughs> His other activity was also, at least partly, sports-related. Wong was visiting the moon to hang out with his good buddy, <laughs> Uatu the Watcher. Oh, good. Uatu is a watcher. He's vowed not to interfere, but as a side effect of that, he's become quite a sports fan. <laughs> Ah. So he was a spectator and uh, he and Wong decided to get together. Wong went up there. He thought, I think they were going to watch some March Madness basketball. But Uatu was, in fact, more interested in watching the 1976 World Figure Skating Championships. There was so much figure skating at this time. There really was. Wong, casual fan of figure skating. Big fan of Dorothy Hamill. Thought she was, she was real pretty. Pretty good figure skater. Mm -hmm. Uatu... Although he has vowed not to interfere, was a huge fan of the German figure skater Christine Erath, and he was sure that she was going to win the big prize that day. So, counter to his policy as a watcher to passively watch and not interfere with Earth events, Uatu made a little side bet with Wong. He bet on Christine Erath, and Wong was like, All right, Uatu, I'll take your money. We're both stylish bald men, we're peers here. Up on the moon. I know you have, like, nearly omnipotent power, but, uh, I think you're wrong about this. And you know what? Mm. Wong was right. Dorothy Hamill won the championship that year, and Uatu was so pissed off that he kicked a big chunk of moon. And two days later, <laughs> that chunk of moon plummeted to the earth as the largest recorded stony meteorite in Jian, China, on March 8th. It was 1,774 kilograms. Dang. And that was just because Uatu was pissed off about some figure skating. That is a crazy world. It really is. Oh, what a world we live in. Mm. 
And that is how Wong was flying away on a Wong and a prayer, because he made a little bit of extra pocket money. Not bad, not bad. Not bad, Wong. That's that, isn't it? I think that's that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Stay tuned when... This is the blurb at the end of the issue that got me very excited for the next issue. The Fawn Unleashed. The Little Bald Man in the Meteorite. The Menace of Celestial Mind Control. The Bozo Syndrome. And more. In the weird tale we call, A Mind is a Terrible Thing. To Get Wasted. I am really looking forward to that. I don't know if I accurately conveyed how much fun I found this issue to be. I think it was accurate. This is some... And fair. This is some peak nonsense we are at right now. Indeed. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can find us on Tumblr, on Facebook. If you would like to contribute monetarily... You can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. And if you would like to leave us a review on the podcatcher platform of your choice, I would certainly appreciate it. I know some of the feeds have been experiencing some interruption lately, and it's been very frustrating for me. I'm dealing with my podcasting platform about that. They've been doing some updates, and I might need to go to a different server because I'm not thrilled with how they've handled things, but I really appreciate you bearing with us through this time. If you'd like to hear more of me chatting, which, hey, why wouldn't you? I am going to be guest co-hosting a fantastic show that I'm honored to be a part of. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Jay is uh, out of town. I believe he is honeymooning in Latveria. And uh, I will be joining Miles and we will be talking some Rom the Space Knight and some 70s Jack Kirby Captain America and some X-Men crossovers that those characters did. And that should be coming out in, I believe, early July. So I'm really stoked about that, and hopefully you'll check that out as well. Thank you so much for listening, and... Sploog! (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And they knew it. Spider-Man and the Cupcake Caper. Peter Parker is in Mary Jane Watson's apartment when suddenly he sees a familiar enemy. MJ, you'll have to excuse me for a minute. You have this thing, Tiger, and I hate it. Every time there's trouble, you disappear. Relax, MG. All I want to do is get some milk to have with these hostess cupcakes. Sure, Peter. Anything to avoid reality. But at least this time you left me of the really delicious snack. Devil's food cake, chocolatey icing, creamy filling. Thought Bubble. I hate having Mary Jane think I'm a coward, but there's no other way I can slip into my Spider-Man role, and only Spidey can handle Man Mountain Marco. Don't look now, Marco, but the mountain just became a molehill. Webhead, we don't understand you, but we sure appreciate the help. Thanks, guys. Meanwhile, I've got a quart of grade A to deliver. Sorry it took me so long, MJ, but I, uh, I got er, a little bit distracted. No sweat, Peter. The hostess cupcakes you left me with were a lot more rewarding to me than you've ever been. Thought Bubble. Brother, if she only knew. Aww. 
You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. Man, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. Ate all the dessert. Well, he abandoned her. She doesn't know that he's Spider-Man. And she's got a nice polka dot shirt. She should have left him a cupcake. She should have left him years ago. Oh, dang. Yeah. Time is here. <laughs> <Chakra's> brain is <laughs> in a deer. It's becoming perfectly clear that it's minutia time. Bum, just use, use that, man. Maybe next time. The 17th of March, 1976, was visiting a little bit of a retirement party for uh, Reuben Carter, the hurricane mm-hmm. boxer. It was a little bit of a weird retirement party because... He was retried, not retired. <laughs> I'm sorry, Corey. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you don't want to have a retried party because he was on parole and they sent him back to jail for another 10 years. Oh. Okay, so... Let's back it up a little bit. It's okay, I can make this work. Okay. Okay. 